All right, Nick. So we're done with our boards and uh, Kriogs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after Creongs, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. So today we have with us back uh, Dr. David Abel, who is an assistant professor at the Department of OBGYN in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, um, who's going to be talking to us about uh, thalassemias and pregnancy. Welcome back, Dr. Abel. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be back again. Yeah, thanks again, Dr. Abel. So just for our learning objectives today, first, we're going to appreciate hemoglobin transitions that occur from fetal to adult life. We'll understand the different globin chains and the globin composition. I'm sure that's bringing back some nightmares for some people from medical school. Um, But then finally, we'll review the definition of thalassemia with an emphasis on alpha and beta thalassemia and the implications, of course, for pregnancy. So Dr. Abel, I guess just to start us off, just to start us off, before we get into specific thalassemias, let's just kind of talk about the basics to start regarding hemoglobin. Well, as you said, Nick, it, it, it may be a little bit painful and bring back some memories there that maybe we want to forget. But let's talk a little bit about the hemoglobin molecule. Remember, hemoglobins are the major, major oxygen-carrying pigments of the body, and they're packed into red blood cells in quantities sufficient to carry enough oxygen from the lungs to the tissues to meet the needs of our cells for oxidative metabolism. Now, just out of interest, we have a tremendous amount of hemoglobin in our body to meet the needs of our tissues. And we actually carry almost two pounds of hemoglobin at any given time. Wow. Kind of a cool thing that I, of course, would never know. The major function of hemoglobin is as an oxygen transporter, and it is a primary function of our red blood cells to encase the hemoglobin and protect it so it can serve as this oxygen transporter for a prolonged period. Now, in terms of structure, the hemoglobin molecule, as you recall, is a tetramer. So it consists of two pairs of unlike globin chains, where these chains, if you will, represent a string of polypeptides. Now, this tetramer is composed of two alpha chains, and as we will soon discuss, two non-alpha globin chains. Uh, The molecular mass of a hemoglobin tetramer is very large. It's approximately 64,000 Daltons. The primary structure of a particular hemoglobin is determined by its covalent bonds between the amino acids that form these polypeptide globins. And it is this primary structure that determines the behavior 
of a particular hemoglobin. So Dr. Abel, let's kind of get into the specifics now. So you had said that there were these two alpha chains and the two non-alpha chains. Tell us about the specifics and what are the specific hemoglobins and their globin chain compositions? Well, I think to address this, Faye, let's, let's first talk about the hemoglobins that exist in utero and sort of work our way up to normal adult hemoglobin. An important concept is that the structure of human hemoglobin actually changes during fetal development. The switch from embryonic to fetal to adult hemoglobin synthesis is a major mechanism by which the developing fetus adapts from the hypoxic intrauterine environment as each hemoglobin has its own oxygen dissociation curve. So hemoglobin synthesis is controlled by two multi-gene clusters, the alpha and beta globin genes. And just to confuse things up a little bit more, each of these two gene clusters contain other genes as well that we will discuss. So many people think of hemoglobin F, right? Fetal hemoglobin as the first hemoglobin that exists in utero. However, in the embryonic stage of development, there exists both zeta and epsilon globin chains that are synthesized by the yolk sac erythroblasts. Now the zeta gene is part of that alpha globin gene cluster and the epsilon gene is part of the beta globin gene cluster. Now, for those of you that may be particularly interested in this topic, you may come across names of hemoglobin, such as Gower-1, which is made up of two zeta and two epsilon chains, Gower-2, which is two alpha and two epsilon chains, and my favorite, hemoglobin Portland, where I live, which is comprised of two zeta and two gamma chains. I don't think a lot of people knew that hemoglobin Portland even exists. Now, after the first trimester, the zeta and epsilon globin chains are essentially replaced by hemoglobin F, which, as most of us know, is the dominant hemoglobin in utero, which is comprised of two fetal gamma globin chains and two alpha globin chains. Now, the gamma gene is a fetal gene that is part of the beta globin gene cluster. Before birth, there is a transition from these gamma chains to beta globin chains. Hemoglobin F actually declines in the third trimester of pregnancy and is slowly replaced by hemoglobin A, which is the one that we're most familiar of with, which consists of two alpha and two beta chains and is the predominant hemoglobin in adults. Also keep in mind that expression of delta globin begins near birth. The delta gene, like the gamma gene, is also part of the beta globin cluster. At birth, hemoglobin F accounts for approximately 75 to 80% of hemoglobin, and hemoglobin A accounts for approximately 20 to 25%. Now, postnatally, hemoglobin F is slowly replaced by hemoglobin A so that infants do not rely heavily on normal amounts and function of hemoglobin A until they are about between four and six months old. In adults, hemoglobin A makes up approximately 97%. Hemoglobin A2, which consists of two alpha and two delta chains, makes up approximately 2.5%. And the remaining, which is less than 1%, consists of hemoglobin F. So when you order a hemoglobin electrophoresis and it is normal, that's the report that you usually will see. Hemoglobin A is somewhere around 97%. A2 is somewhere around 2 to 3%. And the remaining, which is around 1% or less, consists of hemoglobin F. No, that's super helpful, both the uh, kind of evolution of hemoglobin from fetal life to adult life, as well as the uh, 
review of the Greek alphabet, I guess. But kind of coming back to our topic of the day, let's talk about what exactly a hemoglobinopathy is, and then specifically, what are the characteristics of thalassemia as a sort of a subgroup of hemoglobinopathy? Sure. So hemoglobinopathies arise when a change occurs in the structure of a peptide chain or a defect that compromises the ability to synthesize a specific polypeptide chain. I usually divide hemoglobinopathies into qualitative or quantitative defects, and thalassemias are quantitative disorders. Now, in case you're interested, the term thalassemia is derived from a Greek term that roughly means the sea and most likely the Mediterranean. The term is now used to refer to inherited defects in globin chain biosynthesis. Individual syndromes are named according to the globin chain whose synthesis is adversely affected. So thus, alpha thalassemia represents either a reduction or even complete absence of production of alpha globin chains. And beta thalassemia is a reduction or complete absence of beta globin production. Thalassemias are among the most common autosomal recessive disorders worldwide, and more than 100 genetic forms of alpha thalassemia have been identified. So I wanted to turn our attention now to specifically, you know, alpha and beta thalassemia, which is what I think we hear mostly as clinicians. How do we deal with those? So let's talk about, you know, diagnosis and clinical manifestations of alpha and beta thal. Sure. So the alpha globin gene cluster is located on chromosome 16, and for beta globin, the gene cluster is located on chromosome 11. Both genes for alpha globin are duplicated, and this is an important point. Thus, there are four genes of the alpha globin locus with two genes inherited from both parents. Now, the beta globin gene consists of two genes, one inherited from each parent. Now, in terms of diagnosis, a hemoglobin evaluation, again, essentially a hemoglobin electrophoresis, can be used to diagnose beta thalassemia. And this can reveal either a reduction in the expression of beta globin, which often you will see written as a beta with a plus sign as a superscript, or complete absence of beta globin expression, which is written with a zero as the superscript. Complete absence of beta globin expression is referred to as beta thalassemia major, or Cooley's anemia. However, the preferred nomenclature is now transfusion-dependent thalassemia. So Cooley's anemia, complete absence of beta globin expression is really now referred to as transfusion-dependent thalassemia. And these individuals have little to no beta globin gene production and thus minimal to absence of hemoglobin A. Symptoms usually manifest about six to 12 months of life after the transition from hemoglobin F to hemoglobin A is usually complete. Uh, since there is no hemoglobin A due to the lack of beta globin, hemoglobin F persists, and thus on a hemoglobin electrophoresis, you will see at least 95% of hemoglobin F, and hemoglobin A2 will usually range between about 3.5 and 7%. The circulating red blood cells are very hypochromic, abnormal in shape, and the hemoglobin is markedly reduced somewhere around 3 to 4 grams per deciliter. Now, accumulation of all this free alpha globin genes leads to the deposition of precipitated aggregates of these chains, which adversely affects both the red blood cell and the bone marrow precursors. Now, the anemia of beta thalassemia major is so severe that long-term blood transfusions are usually required for survival. The severe anemia results in, as you can imagine, extramedullary erythropoiesis, as well as delayed sexual development and poor growth. 
Death may occur by age 10 unless treatment with periodic blood transfusions initiated, which will help reverse the severe anemia and suppress that extramedullary erythropoiesis. Now, moving on, beta-thalassemia intermedia is now referred to as non-transfusant-dependent beta-thalassemia and presents as a less severe clinical phenotype. A moderate microcytic anemia is present, but chronic transfusion therapy is not absolutely required. On hemoglobin electrophoresis, up to 50% of hemoglobin F will be noted, and just as in beta-thalassemia major, hemoglobin A2 will usually range between 3.5 and 7%. Beta-thalassemia intermedia may result from different mechanisms. This includes inheriting both a mild and severe beta-thalassemia mutation, or the inheritance of two mild mutations, and even on occasion, the inheritance of complex combinations of mutations. Now, beta-thalassemia minor, also referred to as beta-thalassemia trait, is caused by the presence of a single beta-thalassemia mutation and a normal beta-globin gene on the other chromosome. And this is characterized by a significant microcytosis with hypochromia on the blood smear, but a mild anemia. So in general, thalassemia minor has no associated symptoms. On hemoglobin electrophoresis, hemoglobin F is present in up to 5% and hemoglobin A2 at 4% or more. Dr. Abel, that's a super helpful overview of the beta thalassemia characteristics. And as you mentioned, sort of at the top of this, you know, beta thalassemia is just one gene from each parent. So probably more classically what we think about in terms of autosomal recessive diseases. I have to imagine as we move on to talking about alpha thalassemia that the picture might get a little bit more complicated. I would agree with that, Nick, for sure. Uh, the alpha thalassemias are more difficult to diagnose because the typical elevations in hemoglobin F and hemoglobin A2 that are seen in the beta thalassemias uh, that we have just discussed really do not occur. So this makes hemoglobin electrophoresis difficult to use for this diagnosis. Instead, molecular testing, essentially DNA sequencing is required. Now, I mentioned that there was more than 100 genetic forms of alpha thalassemia that have been identified with phenotypes ranging from asymptomatic to lethal. Despite this complexity, the severity of this disorder is usually well correlated with the number of non-functional copies of the alpha globin genes, which makes sense. So again, as you discussed, recall we are dealing with four genes here. So we are essentially talking about a one, two, three, or four gene deletion. So a one alpha globin gene deletion is referred to as a silent carrier. And this essentially has no clinical consequences. On the CBC, the mean corpuscular volume, the MCV is usually normal or perhaps mildly decreased. Then moving on to a two gene deletion, this is referred to as alpha thalassemia minor or alpha thalassemia trait. And this is more common in individuals of Southeast Asian, African, and West Indian descent. It is also common in individuals with Mediterranean ancestry. Now, if both genes on the same chromosome are deleted, this is known as a cis deletion. And a cis deletion is more commonly seen in those of Southeast Asian ancestry. In individuals of African descent, a trans deletion is more common where a deletion occurs on each chromosome. Now, the difference between a cis and trans two-gene deletion is significant. 
because if both parents have a two-gene deletion in trans, their offspring will always have the same two-gene deletion in trans. And that may be a little bit hard, but just if you think about it, like you might do your little Punnett square type thing. Now for parents who carry a cis deletion, if both of them carry this cis deletion, their offspring will have a 25% chance of having no functional alpha globin genes. And this is known as alpha thalassemia major or hemoglobin BARTS, which again is a four gene deletion that results in a gamma tetramer. Normal hemoglobin A and hemoglobin F are totally absent. Hemoglobin BARTS is essentially incompatible with life and results in high drops in utero and stillbirth. Its oxygen dissociation curve is really shifted to the left. So it holds on to oxygen and very little is released to the tissues. Usually the fetus or newborn will have marked anisarca and hepatosplenomegaly with a hemoglobin level as low as three, ranging up to 10 grams per deciliter. Now, if a fetus is known to have alpha thalassemia major, this hemoglobin BARTS, multiple intrauterine transfusions can help these fetuses survive. Um, and just out of interest, there's a study that's ongoing at the University of California, San Francisco, that is looking at the use of in utero uh, stem cell transplantation during pregnancy to essentially cure the fetus before birth. And I believe uh, that maybe we'll have that uh, link to the website uh, on the website for folks to look at, uh, look at that study a little bit more in detail. Okay, so we've done one and two gene deletions. Now we're up to three. So that leaves a three gene deletion, and this is known as hemoglobin H, which, which results in a moderate microcytic anemia. So when the alpha chains are reduced, the beta chains pair together and form beta globin tetramers, which essentially is what hemoglobin H represents. To confuse things even more, instead of a three gene deletion, sometimes you can have a two gene deletion that occurs along with a mutant alpha globin uh, mutation such as hemoglobin constant spring. You may come across that in your reading. So this is referred to as non-deletional hemoglobin H, where individuals with this non-deletional hemoglobin H have a higher percentage of hemoglobin H, more splenomegaly, and more advanced disease as compared to people that have the deletional hemoglobin H. Most individuals with hemoglobin H don't require regular transfusions. The anemia is typically mild, However, the phenotype is variable, ranging from asymptomatic to requiring episodic transfusions. With the dilutional anemia that occurs during pregnancy, the need of a transfusion may be increased. Finally, remember that prenatal diagnosis of the thalassemias can be performed either using chorionic villi from CVS or using cultured amniocytes obtained from an amniocentesis. Well, thank you for that very thorough discussion of um, alpha-thal and beta-thal, Dr. Abel. Um, let's talk a little bit more about workup then. So how should we initiate a workup for thalassemia? Well, the first thing I would say is that for patients of African descent, performing a hemoglobin electrophoresis is very reasonable regardless of the MCV. And I do think that one take-home message is to have a low threshold to perform an electrophoresis um, if you're considering a thalassemia and in particular beta thalassemia. For the other at-risk ethnic groups we have discussed, if the MCV is decreased, which usually means less than 80, a hemoglobin electrophoresis, like I mentioned, is certainly reasonable. 
I would add that performing a ferritin to assess for iron deficiency is also something that could be performed at the same time. And of course, keep in mind that an iron deficiency anemia could exist as well as a thalassemia. Now, if the MCV is significantly decreased, perhaps less than 75, although I really don't have a, a true defined value for that, if iron, iron deficiency is first diagnosed, also performing a hemoglobin electrophoresis is reasonable. And if the MCV is decreased and both the ferritin and hemoglobin electrophoresis are normal, since a hemoglobin electrophoresis cannot diagnose alpha thalassemia, one should consider molecular studies to assess for alpha thalassemia, and that would be appropriate. No, that's perfect. I think that's probably one of the more common issues that we encounter too in clinical practice. Um, and knowing when to send off testing for that electrophoresis, which sounds like having a low threshold is a good place to start. Well, perfect. Dr. Abel, thank you so much again for your time today um, and for this thorough and extremely helpful walk through the world of thalassemias. Um, hey, why don't we try to summarize? Sure. So we started off with an introduction about hemoglobin itself. So remember that it is an oxygen-carrying molecule in red blood cells made up of a tetramer of two alpha chains and two non-alpha chains. Screening for hemoglobinopathy should occur for all pregnant patients, which should take the form of at least a complete blood count with indices. Uh, we should have a low threshold for getting something like a hemoglobin electrophoresis, especially if the MCV is 80 or less. Similarly, if the patient has an ancestry or family history of hemoglobinopathy, it's very reasonable to also send an electrophoresis regardless of indices. And don't forget to send a ferritin as well because iron deficiency and thalassemias can coexist. Hemoglobin synthesis is controlled by two multi-gene globulin clusters, the alpha cluster, which is on chromosome 16, and the beta cluster on chromosome 11. There's a variety of hemoglobin molecules that can be composed, but important to know are hemoglobin A, which is comprised of two alpha and two beta chains, hemoglobin F, which is two alpha and two gamma chains, and hemoglobin A2, which are two alpha and two delta chains. Hemoglobinopathies can arise when there's a problem in the structure or synthesis of one of these globin chains. Alpha-thal is a reduction or absence of the alpha chains and beta-thal for the beta chains. Importantly, this differentiates thalassemias from something like sickle cell anemia, which is a structural hemoglobinopathy, and we'll, of course, talk about this in a future episode with Dr. Abel. For beta-thalassemia, this breaks into beta-thalassemia major, also known as transfusion-dependent thalassemia, beta-thalassemia intermedia and beta-thalassemia minor. In major disease, because of the inability to synthesize beta-globin, they have little to no hemoglobin A, have a predominance of hemoglobin F and hemoglobin A2 on electrophoresis, and have a resultant severe anemia that requires transfusion for survival. Intermedia has an intermediate phenotype, and minor is typically manifested just by carriage of a beta-thalassemia trait, manifesting as severe microcytosis, but mild anemia overall. And finally, alpha thalassemia breaks up into four types and molecular testing is required to identify them. Single alpha gene deletion is called a silent carrier. Two gene deletion can be in cis, where they are on the same chromosome or trans different chromosomes, which carries implications for reproduction. A three gene deletion results in hemoglobin H, which results in moderate microcytic anemia. And finally, a four gene deletion results in hemoglobin BARTS, which is incompatible with life. An ongoing study regarding in utero stem cell transplantation during pregnancy looks to change the outcomes of fetuses affected by hemoglobin BARTS. And you can find more information about this on our website. All right, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. 
and this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes, Punnett squares for this episode if you need that to kind of solidify your understanding of thalassemias and the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And you can also find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram uh, at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Finally, if you have a question for us on this episode or any of our previous episodes or just want to say hi, email us, craigsrivercoffee at gmail.com.